Welcome to the Sideline Report, and this is CMO Corner. This is a collaborative podcast from the Education and Communication Committees of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Jacob Miller. We are very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Jonathan Finoff. Dr. Finoff is a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician serving as the Chief Medical Officer of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. He is a pioneer in many areas of sports medicine, including concussion and the use of ultrasound in diagnosis and treatment of musculoskeletal injuries. Well, Dr. Finoff, it's very good to talk to you again. Thank you so much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. You're you're very welcome. So we spoke almost a year ago, right at the start of the pandemic, and I'm curious to hear how the programs that you are running for your athletes have evolved during the many phases of the pandemic and how things are running for you now. Yeah, so um, when I arrived uh, and it was declared a global pandemic, and again, I do not think there was any direct correlation between arrives and the pandemic was declared shortly thereafter, we had to close down our training centers because of public health guidelines. Certainly. Um, and then one week later, the games were delayed. So during that week, there was a huge amount of stress for our athletes because their training centers were closed. They didn't have access to other facilities. It was very stressful. They thought the games were happening. They felt like there was an unfair advantage uh, in countries that did not have the same issues with access to training centers. Mm-hmm. But then... You know, games were delayed. Everything was kind of shut down across the country. And so people were upset and stressed, but also took a step back and felt a little bit better about things because there wasn't the same pressure. Then people started thinking towards the end of May and beginning of June, how are we going to proceed from here? What are are we going to do to get back into sport? Because we need to start training again. And eventually we need to start competing again. And so I consulted with many experts in sports medicine from different leagues, people around the world, IOC, IPC, World Health Organization, uh, CDC, infectious disease experts, people who organize events and so on. So just a really broad base of knowledge and um, stakeholders and came up with two documents. So one was a return to sports document, which Mm -hmm. kind of outlined being in a fully shut down state Mm -hmm. back to essentially a normal state, which we haven't fully gotten back to what I was considering phase five, um, where there's either a a vaccine that is widely distributed and and things are back to normal. You know, or or really really effective treatment. Now we have the vaccine starting to roll out, and we have some treatments that are pretty good, but uh, we're still not quite there yet. So we're kind of in the phase four at this mm-hmm. point. Then, at any rate, put that out, and then also uh, put out a document um, describing how uh, to start planning an event. And that was again based on a lot of different input. Um, and then also there was a nice document that the World Health Organization had been working on at the time as well. And so used that as a structural format, but put a little bit more meat onto the skeleton that they had created. Mm-hmm. And then public health uh, authorities said that you can start looking at reopening health facilities, health club types of facilities, workout facilities in the locations where we had our training centers. uh, And it wasn't all at the same time, it was a little bit staggered. But that being said, we put together a plan first on how we would open it for staff 
to be back at work and then how we would start re-entering athletes and the and the process that we came up with originally was having athletes monitor their signs and symptoms prior to travel if they'd had any signs or symptoms staying home and getting tested and evaluated by a physician but otherwise coming to the training center we did a webinar in advance for them uh, so they knew what our processes and procedures were um, when they arrived we did a touchless entry process into a quarantine room for each of them mm. and provided them with meals um, workout equipment in their room so that they could continue doing some training a certain amount of time for individual training outside each day mental health resources because it's a stressful time and then you know delivered meals personalized meals to their rooms um, for all, all meals and snacks and so on mm-hmm. And then after on days four and five of that quarantine process doing PCRs and we would get the results back on the evening of day six and then would be uh, released from quarantine the morning of day seven if they had a negative test. We were originally doing a combination of PCRs but also antibody testing because a lot of people didn't know whether they had had COVID-19 or or not. Mm -hmm. And we identified multiple people who did have COVID-19 based on antibodies that did not realize that they had had it. So they were either asymptomatic or it was mild enough that it just didn't trigger their, you know, warning flags sure. that said, go in to see a physician. Yeah. And, but at the time, nobody knew exactly how this was going to affect other systems. And so in particular, was this going to cause uh, myocarditis, pericarditis, other things that could be life-threatening yeah. in an athlete when they elevate their heart rate. So every single person who either tested positive by a PCR or had a positive antibody test, once they were released from quarantine, we had them get a troponin I, ECG, and echocardiogram to evaluate their cardiac status before allowing them to go back Mm -hmm. to sport. Um, And thankfully, nobody has had any abnormalities um, during that process. But we also, during that reentry process, we're doing standard pre-participation physicals, non-elite athletes that involves an ECG. And as part of that screening, we actually had several other cardiac things that we found, but they were totally unrelated hmm. to COVID-19. So kind of an interesting thing. When somebody tested positive, based on CDC guidance at that time, we would keep them quarantined for the recommended period of time of the CDC, but then try to test them out of quarantine. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had some that it went smoothly, but then we had some that were in quarantine for a month because they kept having the positive PCR tests, Mm -hmm. which, of course, we know and the CDC recommends not getting a PCR test for 90 days following an infection. But originally, that was not the case. You were supposed to test out of quarantine. Mm -hmm. And so that really affected some of our athletes uh, early on. Um, And so that was changed fairly shortly after that time frame. Then we started having athletes uh, traveling and starting to do international competitions, and that added a whole new complication to things because people were going to Europe, and then somebody would test positive, and you do contact tracing, and several people would have to stay, and they'd have to leave a staff member while the team met, moved to the next competition location. Right. And then there were problems going from country to country because of testing requirements, how do we get international tests? There wasn't good information in terms of how to get tests. And so negotiating contracts with uh, testing facilities in Europe to be able to get testing requirements to cross borders 
that met the requirements. That was kind of an interesting process, which is, has also evolved because now there's a lot of resources that you can use online in order to identify testing centers anywhere in the world. And then, of course, we had some uh, spikes in terms of the wave in the fall, late summer, early fall, and then and then in the uh, December, January timeframe. And the one in December, January being significant enough that we had to close down the Colorado Springs Training Center again I see. Uh, because of the local area. But in the meantime, we have had the vaccine start rolling out. Um, we've learned a lot more about COVID-19, and so we've made some significant changes in our training center. So now, if you've had a vaccination and or you've had COVID-19 in the last 90 days and you have a documented PCR test to demonstrate that, then we don't have, and you're asymptomatic, you do not have to go through the re-entry process okay. because of immunity. And this is based on CDC guidance that if you have close sustained contact with somebody after you've had COVID-19 or you have had a vaccination, you do not need to quarantine if you're asymptomatic. So mm -hmm. the whole point of us quarantining people was to catch them if they happened to have had close sustained contact and, and didn't know. Mm -hmm. But that allows them to go in sooner. Anybody who's had COVID-19 in the last 90 days, we do not do a screening test on. We're doing surveillance testing uh, on a regular basis based on COVID prevalence in the location of our training centers. Mm -hmm. We've shortened our quarantine time frame. We're not going as aggressive as the NFL, but we're doing 10 days, which we were originally doing 14 days after close sustained contact. And we've modified some of our training within the facilities where we were previously very, very conservative, uh, but it has uh, led to a lot of restrictions. We just realized that to some degree, uh, there are some sports where there is close sustained contact in that sport. Mm -hmm. And so we to modify some of the training situations based on their training partners and allow a larger group to be able to, and by a larger group, you know, two or three people uh, to be able to uh, train closer together as opposed to always trying to maintain separation in one area, but allowing them to have closest in area. So a lot of different uh, changes have occurred in those processes and we're, you know, and we're still learning. Um, mm -hmm. We're still every, every day. Absolutely. Some of the restrictions that you're talking about sound very similar to what the NCAA has been doing. And I'm just curious as far as, was there much back and forth between the USOPC and the NCAA or various other governing bodies as far as what was being done to screen athletes or to vaccinate athletes or to keep them safe? Yeah, we definitely have been in contact with the chief medical officers of a variety of the professional sports leagues as well as uh, NCAA and talking to them about how they are handling different situations. We're all sharing resources in terms of like testing, who is who is providing the best, most reliable test, what, what issues have people dealt with in terms of shipping, turnaround time, customer service, uh, cost. Mm -hmm. We're right now looking at different contact tracing options that are beyond just verbal and people's memory, which is fallible. So using more <laughs> objective data and looking at uh, different leagues that have used different systems and, and how whether they were successful or not. So we're definitely sharing information regularly with them, uh, as well as our international counterparts. Very, very good. Certainly, the vaccines have changed the game as far as what we hope to do here in the next few months. And 
I'm curious to get your take on the various ethical questions that that have have come up since the vaccines have become more widespread in terms of reopening leagues, reopening countries, making things easier for athletes to go and compete in various places. And, and certainly it's going to have a role with the Olympics this summer as well. What are some of your thoughts as far as the the ethics of prioritizing vaccination for national athletes or athletes at any level for that matter? Yeah, I mean, I, I can say that my personal opinion uh, in the stance that the USOPC has taken is that athletes should not get preferential treatments and be moved in front of uh, other people who have a higher risk of a complication associated with COVID-19. And so looking at the faces, we feel very comfortable and confident that that's the appropriate way of rolling out the, uh, the vaccine. Now, when it gets to phase three, we would love to have a plan in place such that if it's available to the general population, we have a good plan for efficiently and effectively vaccinating our delegations going to the Olympic and Paralympic Games this summer. But we certainly don't want to uh, skip the line and get in front. And it's interesting around the world, there are different takes on that. And from a societal standpoint, the value placed on national team athletes in the delegation of the Olympics is is different. Mm-hmm. And so I think ethics, it, a lot of it is based upon societal norms and expectations and, and they're different in different locations. So I think in the United States, and, and for me personally, just having grown up in this society and societal norms and expectations, I think that what we're doing is appropriate. But there are other countries that are absolutely prioritizing their national team athletes and vaccinating them. You know, from a public health standpoint, the biggest super spreader event in the world could be the Olympics or the Paralympic Games. If it's not run perfectly because you have 250 plus countries uh, from around the world coming to one location, mixing everybody up, and then they go back to their different countries. And so from a public health standpoint, uh, vaccination of that population is probably not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing with uh, the Japanese population, bringing people from high-risk countries or variable-risk countries in there. Is it ethical to expose the Japanese people to that level of risk? And so I think there's there are a lot of different questions, and it's a very complex uh, answer to it. But from the USOPC standpoint, I don't know if our delegation will or will not be vaccinated prior to going to the games. We're going to do everything we can to be ready when it's available to our delegation, but it just may not be the time yet. We're not going to uh, jump the line. Very good. Last time you and I talked, we talked about the great emphasis that you hope to place on on mental health within the athletic population there at the, the training center. And I'm curious to hear how the rollout of that program has gone and how that's evolved within the context of the pandemic as well. Yeah, it, it's kind of it's kind of fun to talk about a non-COVID related issue, although I guess <laughs> there is some relationship because the, sure. the pandemic has certainly um, stressed everybody out. And uh, But that being said, the mental health program is something that's super important and it's non-COVID, so that's sure. good. So we have hired a director of mental health mm-hmm. We have created a registry around the country of mental health providers who meet our criteria 
and that's going to be externally facing, meaning that our athletes, our staff, um, NGBs can utilize this resource without having to go through us to identify these uh, providers, and that way it can be private. But that being said, as they go through that, they are also given the opportunity to contact us if they want to have additional resources in place. Mm -hmm. We've negotiated a, a new insurance contract for our elite athlete health insurance that has phenomenal mental health benefits uh, in that, in that uh, contract. We're hiring three more associate directors of mental health that will be placed at our three different uh, training center sites. We're also hiring a mental health manager um, who will be, who is a mental health provider and will provide it for the team behind the team. So our staff at the USOPC, because uh, as we've built this amazing program that is externally facing for NGBs and athletes and so on, a lot of our internal staff have recognized how important it is for us and our health. And so the, the um, organization has supported our endeavors to uh, provide that to our staff as well. We're starting to, we have a hotline for um, urgent and emergent situations. We've built out beautiful emergent mental health emergency action plans at all three of our training center sites. We have mental health officers that are going with us to the games, both Olympic and Paralympic games that will be at each of the different villages. So we went from essentially nothing other than sports psychology, which truly has been performance-based, mm -hmm. even though many of them are clinically trained, they are hired to be performance-based uh, mental, uh, performance-based sports psychologists as opposed to mental health providers. Mm -hmm. And they have done some mental health provision, but it's, it's because it was needed, but not because that's what they were hired for, mm -hmm. to having a pretty robust program that is continuing to build and in my opinion, it's going to be one that uh, other National Olympic and Paralympic committees will try to emulate. So I'm really proud of it. And that sounds very robust and extremely exciting. Um, yeah. Back in the spring when we talked about it, I thought that that was going to be a great blessing to the, the U.S. athletes. And it's nice to hear that, that the staff are getting that, uh, that benefit as well. So that's good to hear. Um, building off of that just a little bit, your job as a chief medical officer um, is certainly a stressful one. And requires that you wear many different hats and that you, that you are conversant in a lot of different areas. And this being the CMO corner, we're kind of learning how, how chief medical officers think, how they function, how they view the world, and how they view their jobs. And so I'm just curious to hear from your perspective how, how you're maintaining your own mental health, not just with the pandemic, and we can talk about that later, but really just within the context of all the responsibilities that you have? Yeah, so I can say honestly that this is the most amazing, incredible, awful, horrible job <laughs> ever. <laughs> it has the highest highs and the lowest lows and the biggest demands of anything I have ever faced professionally or you know, for that matter, personally, this has just been incredibly uh, challenging. Sure. But I, you know, I really like a challenge, um, and I would say that uh, the vast majority of days when I go home, I feel good about the decisions I'm making and the stances I've taken and the strides forward that uh, we're making as an Olympic and Paralympic committee. A few things. So we've had some big staff 
changes within sports medicine. And that's, uh, and we've also had some people go out on uh, maternity leave and paternity leave um, and for various other reasons. And so the demands on me beyond the pandemic uh, and some of these other the staff changes, literally I'm coming in at 6 a.m. and I'm getting home at 9 or 10 a.m. almost every day. And every weekend there's always an emergency and there are calls at all hours. So it has been very, very, very challenging from a time commitment standpoint. And I think my family has got to be the most understanding family in the world. Now, that being said, all that being said, we have six games coming up in a 12-month time frame. So the Olympic and Paralympic Games this summer, the uh, Youth Pan Am and Youth Para Pan Am Games in the fall, and then the Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games we have a pandemic. We have all the Olympic trials. We have the training centers having to do all this. We have this, this staff turnover. So I feel like right now I'm in a little bit of the perfect storm, mm-hmm. but I'm also hiring some great staff to help me. I think that some of the restructuring that we've done is going to result in immense improvements of the medical care for the Olympic and Paralympic movements. I think the mental health aspect is incredible and the games are going to come and go. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very optimistic that uh, my work-life balance is going to dramatically improve over time. But right now, it is absolutely a million miles an hour every day, all day. Sure. You mentioned that this is kind of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And I think a lot of people look at the position that you're in and feel that, that you are a good person to fill that position. You're a very accomplished, um, very competent physician. I'm curious to hear what are some um, attributes as a physician that you are still trying to develop or as a person that you're still trying to develop at this point? Yeah. I mean, I feel like all of us, no matter what we've done in our lives, are still just at the, we're just scratching the surface of what we can learn and the the skills that we can acquire. And so, you know, I'm, I am constantly trying to learn from others and, and look at the people who are doing a great job and emulate them. I'm (laughs) on top of everything else. I enrolled in a leadership uh, course uh, through the USOPC called podium. Um, And that has been really interesting. And uh, it's interesting to hear other people's challenges Uh, to hear about ways of problem-solving, team-building, structures, time management, just so many different things. And so from my standpoint, I'm really working right now. I'm focusing a lot on on building my leadership skills. I'm focusing a lot on my organizational skills. And I I happen to be a very organized person. (laughs) My parents can say that when I uh, went out and trick-or-treated when I was a kid, I organized all of my candy in the same size, the same color, the same brand, you know, like when I was five and six, I was already doing that stuff. But there are always things that you can do way better. And frankly, you were talking about sort of how do I take care of myself? I need to work more mindfulness and self-reflection into my schedule. And that's, that's another thing that I need to improve upon is making sure that uh, that I'm doing the things that I need to in order to make sure that I'm prepared every day to uh, jump into that fire and, and lead. And it, and it is right now. I'll tell you, medical 
staff of any sport are not going to be the most popular right now because we have to make rules and regulations that people are not liking. Uh, and you have to be strong and you have to know that what you're doing is right. Uh, so I, you know, I'm very mission driven and uh, I feel very strongly that I want to do the right thing for our athletes, but I want to, I want to be the best I can be. And so I'm constantly trying to improve. Last question I have for you on that same vein. What, what have you learned during the pandemic, uh, either about yourself, um, about medicine or about society? I think that the pandemic, along with a lot of other things that have happened uh, from a societal standpoint over the last year, was one more thing that polarized our society. And that, you know, happens within uh, athletes as well uh, and and staff, uh, where some people feel that the pandemic is a hoax and that none of this is, is real and that you know, all of the numbers are made up and stuff. And you have other people who don't want to leave their room because they're so scared that they're going to get sick and die from this. Um, and then everything in between. And so from a societal standpoint, I think the pandemic put a little bit of a little bit more fire under that boiling water that is our society right now. My hope is, is that we're learning a lot about ourselves and each other and mm-hmm. Uh, and that people coming out the other side and and it's kind of like people talk about intense situations whether it's war or medical school or something that's really intense and you go through that with people mm-hmm. and you come out the other side and your bond with them and your understanding is heightened and I'm, I'm hopeful that that's what's going to happen within society as well is that we're going to really truly value some things that we took for granted before and that uh, maybe some of the adversity that we all faced together will bond us together uh, better as a society and that we'll be better for it. Excellent. Well, Dr. Finoff, thank you so very much for your time today. We really appreciate your, your thoughts and your insights and we wish you the best of luck as this year progresses and we prep for the, the big games coming up. Thank you so very much again. Well, I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to talk with you and uh, stay safe. Looking forward to seeing you at the next meeting when we are in person. Me too. Thank you so much, sir.